the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to begin reading just two verses this morning, and then we're going to um, look at a, a series we're going to start today, just a three-week series, it's going to be called A Cheerful Giver, A Cheerful Giver, I wonder what this is about, being cheerful, yes, <laughs> being cheerful, A Cheerful Giver. And uh, so we want to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Again, on the walls, you'll notice that we have some banners up there. Obviously, you have noticed, I'm sure. You may be asking yourself, what are some of those about? Obviously, the men's comments simple. I can't read the other two in the back. But uh, I know that they're pretty uh, basic overall. We do have our tithe challenge coming up. And the tithe challenge is in the month of February. And with that said, we're going to begin to prepare ourselves over the next few weeks for the tithe challenge. And everybody says, oh my, what that, is that about? Well, it's pretty much self-explanatory. And we're going to be challenging everyone in our congregation for the month of February to tithe. We want every single person to tithe that has increase. Because we want to find out, I'm anxious to find this out. I'd love for you, for me, for us to understand what could be if we all obeyed Christ. Wouldn't that be something for us to see what could be? You're not very happy, are you? I know, I'm, li- I'm looking at you, you're all like, like, oh my goodness, this is going to be worse than Christmas. Trust me, it is not going to be worse than Christmas. It isn't really, really, it's not. But what we do want is we want to encourage. And so uh, if you get on the website, you can look it up and it'll say the Tide Challenge. There's some goals there that I have for that month. It'll be there. You're welcome to see those. I'll be sharing more about that as we move along. Also, you'll note the dinner series here. Many have asked questions about the dinner series. That's going to take place at the end of uh, uh, February. And uh, basically, uh, it's just a a night out with the pastor. We're going to be having a lovely dinner. We're going to have some entertainment. And then we're going to, I'm going to share with you uh, some more specific things concerning the, uh, uh, the move from this building to that. What needs to take place between here and there in the month of December. And we're going to try to wrap it all into a wonderful evening of fellowship and food and just a good time with the church family, okay? And so you'll be getting more information about that as well. Well, anyway, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's just look at two verses. Beginning verse 6, we read, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. How could we uh, kick off this series or introduce it each week without that verse? For God loveth a cheerful giver. Well, that's a wonderful statement and something that we all need to be aware of. But our passage here, the one that we've just read, focuses on giving, does it not? I think it's pretty clear that it does. And in verse 6, the apostle, he equates giving with sowing. And this is an interesting analogy that I believe yields a tremendous amount of insight to us. See, sowing is a farming term. It's something that farmers do. They sow seed. And if you'll... To sow seed, basically, is to plant seed in the ground. And then after a seed is planted, it's fed by the rain and the nutrients that are in the soil. And then it takes root, and over time it begins to grow. Then after a season of growth, it produces after its kind, or at least that's the goal. Produces after its kind. 
So the farmer, after it produces, reaps the harvest. He goes out and he picks the fruit or vegetables that he's sown earlier that season. See, this process takes a couple of things. It requires a few things. The process of sowing and reaping requires some planning. The farmer had to identify the fields that he was going to use and the amount of seed that he needed. This was dependent, obviously, upon how much yield that they wanted he or she wanted to, to acquire at the end of the season. Not only did it require planning, but it requires preparation. The farmer now uh, has planned, but now needs to prepare. So they prepare the fields for planting. And then they acquire the seed and they schedule the time in which they're going to plant. I'm sure there's a number of other steps there, but I'm just trying to keep it very simple. And then it requires performance. It wouldn't do any good just to simply plant and prepare and then never plant the seed. So the farmer has to perform that which he has planned and prepared. He takes the seed that he's now purchased and he places it in the field. That's work, by the way. That's work. And then what's required is patience. You plant that seed and you're waiting for the crop to come up, but in the meantime, what do you do? You have to be patient. Oh, there's a number of things that take place along the way, but as a result, you, I mean, in reality, you have to wait till it has, has ripened. Wait till it has come out of the ground. Wait till it has matured, if you will. That takes time and sometimes requires tremendous patience. I don't know about you, but I like things to happen now. It's not like plant, planting, reaping, and sowing is not like um, uh, sowing and reaping, I should say, is not like running to McDonald's drive-thru and getting your hamburger and driving away. It doesn't work like that. It takes time. Then also, it requires some prayer. I mean, the farmer has to pray that the seed will take and that the weather will be fair and that the yield will be great. And then finally, there's some picking that takes place. Now the farmer has, has to, to return to the field the field in which he's planted, the field in which they've, he's, he's planned, prepared, performed, and been patient with and prayed over, he goes there and he begins to pick the fruit that has come up. And that's work also, isn't it? Nothing easy about that. And so in this passage, verse 6, we see that there's this analogy to farming. And I think that that analogy helps us to understand a little bit about giving because that's the analogy. Giving and sowing are connected here. And here's the one thing I want you to understand, that they're all work. You know, it's amazing to me how we think sometimes that the Christian life's just supposed to be ease, comfort, relaxation. Let me tell you something. There is an element of work that goes into sowing the seed. There's an element of work that goes into sowing your giving. When you're going to give, it's going to hurt sometimes, just like it hurts to get out in that field for 12, 16 hours a day. It's not always comfortable. It's not always easy. If you want to reap a harvest in your life, it's going to cost you something. Not just financially. It's going to cost you something as a believer, as a person. We see there in verse 6, this analogy. Giving is likened to farming. And again, the point that most of us fail to understand is that giving is a process that God intends to be a major part of our life. Let me tell you something. If you're a farmer and you're planting fields, it takes a major part of your life. You don't just do that in a few minutes. 
You don't just deal with that in a few hours. I mean, it takes days, hours, weeks, months. It becomes who you are, not just what you do. You know what? Giving's like that. It's not just throwing a few bucks in the plate on Sunday and waiting for God to bless it, but it's a process that requires some planning, preparation, performance, patience, prayer, and finally some picking. Then we move to verse 7, of course. It says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. In this particular passage, we realize that giving is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Notice he says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart. See, God wants you and I to take the time to purpose in our heart what we are going to give. Now, we ought to take some things. We take things from the Word of God. We take things from our personal Bible study. We receive things from the Holy Spirit. And we take the time to to think about it, pray over it, consider it. And we beg God to give us leadership in our giving. That's not something that happens if we're just nonchalantly just, well, I'm just going to throw 20 bucks in the plate. I'm talking about really praying over it, thinking about what is it, God, that you want me to do with what you have prospered me with, have given me. And in this particular passage, he says, Every man according as he purposes in his heart. God wants, intends that you and I as believers take the time to really consider what it is God wants from us and how he wants us to give it. It's a matter of the heart. Giving is a matter of the heart. But giving is a mandate of the master. Notice what else it says. For every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. The reality is is that God intends that believers give. God never intended that we have welfare Christianity. Am I allowed to say that without hurting feelings? What I mean by that is this. Listen, I'm I'm not knocking the welfare system for people that genuinely need it. But then again... There is a stigma attached sometimes to this social system that's being built in America where it seems that we're getting a, a, raising a generation that feels like there's an entitlement package that they deserve. You don't have to work, you just get. Let me tell you something. In God's economy, he never intended that the child of God simply sit and receive. He intended that we also give and then receive. God never intended that a child of God that names the name of Christ let everyone else support the work while they glean from it. You get what I'm saying? You come to church and you eat a meal every Sunday. You say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. This word is likened unto bread. And when it is distributed and given, you have received from God's table. God intends you to give accordingly. This is God's mandate. Now, we haven't discussed what he wants us to give. We're just saying that literally God wants us to give. It's a mandate. God intends us to give. It's a matter of the heart. It's a mandate of the master. But also in this verse, we realize that giving is a manifestation of our love. He says, not grudgingly or of necessity. He says, I want you to give willingly. I don't want you to do it because you feel like you have to. I don't want you to walk into church and walk out feeling like you just got robbed. Oh, great, now I won't have any, any of this or any of that, or it's going to be tight now this week. That's not how God wants us to give as believers. Does he want us to give? Absolutely. 
But how does he want us to give? He wants us to give not grudgingly or of necessity. What he's saying is, I want you to give based on your love. Listen, I'm telling you, there's sacrifice to be made as a parent when it comes to raising children, aren't there? I mean, you don't have some of the things that you would like to have because you are giving those things or spending those resources on those children. Sometimes they take that for granted, don't they? It's amazing, isn't it, sometimes how young people or children have a tendency to disregard your sacrifice. They can't see it. All they see is their own need or their desire or their own want. And they're very selfish sometimes. Let me tell you something. Don't be so surprised if when you get closer to the Lord you realize how selfish you've been. We receive from God so many wonderful blessings, but so often we're so tight to give up anything or to even recognize his goodness or to thank him and appreciate what he's done. Now, he's saying to us, as a result of that, I want you to give to me willingly. I want your love for me to to move you and compel you to give. Then he goes on to say, here also he teaches us, not only is it a matter of the heart, a mandate of the master, a manifestation of our love, but it's a means of pleasing God. It's a means of pleasing God. What's he say? For God loveth a cheerful giver. Listen, when I love something, I'm pleased. I, 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 like, I love watching football. I like when the Browns win. You don't get pleased too much around Northeast Ohio. But I like it when they win. I like, I like things. You know, I like it when my wife says she loves me. I like it when she plants a big smooch on me. I like those things. And that pleases me when she expresses her love to me or when a team, you know, does something good or, or you, you give me a wonderful card or something. like. I'm always excited and grateful and I appreciate that. And when we give according to God's word and we give according to the right attitude and spirit, God is pleased. Our giving is a means by which we please God. You have an opportunity to please God in your giving today. You say, I don't know how to please God. That's one way to do it. That's just one way. But it's a good way. It's God's way. What's it mean to give cheerfully? Well, the word cheerful means lively or animated, having good spirits. It says here also moderately joyful. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I guess what it means is this. You're not going around going, (laughs) yeah. You you know what I'm saying? This is great. (laughs) I get to give. That would be insanely cheerful. Matter of fact, it would be insane. But, but, but in, in God's economy, he's saying being cheerful, moderately, as he, what's the word? Moderately joyful. He's saying, when I'm giving it, I'm going, yes, I, I love to give to God. What a blessing it is to be a part of this work, something bigger than myself. I, I enjoy the opportunity to partake and participate in this ministry and to let God have his way. I'm giving it to him to use as he pleases. I'm thankful for the opportunity, the privilege to give. This is wonderful. You say, wow, I've never felt that way. <laughs> I hope you finally figure it out sooner or later. I love giving cheerfully more than I love giving grudgingly. And all I say is I feel obligated biblically and scripturally to give, so therefore I might as well give with the right spirit instead of the wrong one. And in the meantime, because I give properly, I please God in the process. Cheerful giving. When it's all said and done, what we're to learn is that giving is not done independent of our Christian life or lives. It's not done independent of our Christian lives. Rather, it is a reflection of it. 
Giving is a reflection of our Christianity. You say, what kind of Christian are you? What we learn from the Word of God is that your giving often is a barometer of how your Christianity is. That's, that's what we learn. You say, I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, read the Bible. Sooner or later, you'll figure it out. I'm not trying to be combative. I'm not trying to be angry or mean. I'm just saying this. What you love, you invest in. You say, I love my kids, but then you never meet their needs. Don't tell me you love your kids. And you'd say, well, I understand that. That makes sense to me, preacher. Yeah, anybody that wouldn't provide for the needs of their children certainly couldn't say they love them. Oh, they may say it, but that doesn't mean they mean it. But all of a sudden you say, I say, well, how much do you support or give to your Christ, your Lord? You say, well, I'm not, I don't do much of that. It's different, though? I don't believe so. It's the same principle. It's the same principle. And so, see, what we find then is this. The basis of our giving is self. What do we mean, preacher? Well, what I mean is it begins with a willingness to give ourselves to the Lord, and then the rest follows. That's what we learn. See, today I want to spend a few minutes and talk about the basis of giving. The basis of it. Because I think that sets the foundation for everything else that goes with it. So today we want to spend just a few minutes and discuss the basis of giving. Let's pray. Father, help us now today. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. We ask, Father, that you would just meet with us in this room. We have only a short time. But, Lord, in this short time, may you drive home truths that you want for each of us as individuals. This is not about a church following a pastor. This is about individual believers following their Lord. Help us, Father to find you in the midst of all this, and to be willing to surrender, yield, and to present ourselves unto thee. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now what we find, the, the Apostle Paul here, he's addressing the Corinthians. And he uses the Macedonians as an example of grace giving. And when I talk about grace giving, what I mean basically is the ability to give um, with God's grace versus our own personal or physical ability. To have God's presence in the midst of it. To give it in a way that says, I have God's strength, His power, His ability in me to do as He chooses, not as I would will. It's God's grace in giving. God, the giving is a grace. It's something God enables us to do. I want God's grace in my life, therefore I'm inviting giving in my life. In this particular case... The Apostle Paul is using the Macedonians as an example as he speaks to the Corinthians. And what he says is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. If you can, turn there. If you have your Bible, let's take a look at it. Or maybe if you're, I guess if you're using your little iPad or whatever it is, turn to that or whatever. I, I think a Bible is a wonderful thing to hold in our hands. And, you know, a Bible doesn't shoot. Here's the one positive thing. Here's, I would encourage you to bring a Bible to church maybe rather than use your phone. And again, I'm not opposed to phones. I have the Bible on my phone. I love it. Uh, but, but here's what happens. When you're, when you're reading your Bible with your phone and a call comes in, an email comes in, a Facebook comes in, a text comes in, something pops up, and it distracts you for that split second. 
And all I'm saying is sometimes when we're here, maybe distractions aren't as, as helpful as they ought to be. This is a time where maybe we ought to just cut the world, outside world off for a while. Matter of fact, I might even consider putting, turning my phone completely off while I'm in this room. Not even leaving it on silent. I mean, turn it off. You say, oh, but there's an emergency. If it's an emergency thing, then yeah, I understand. You might want to leave that on. But, uh, but if there's no emergency situation, um, I think it'd be helpful because those distractions can distract us. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the way they used to say it in my day. But anyway, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, anybody warm in here? I am scalding in here. I'm scalding. Thank you very much. I see hands all over the building. I just, we went from freezing last week to uh, heat. Don't turn on, don't turn on the air because I'll get complaints. It's perfectly fine in here. I'm going to take my jacket off in a minute, but if I do, I warn you. Well, I'm not even going to say it. Okay, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren... Look at this. This is good stuff now. It's very good stuff. Very good stuff. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed in the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power, for to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willingly, willing of themselves praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Notice again verse 5. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. We notice here in the passage their desperate position here in Macedonia. A desperate position. He says how that in great trial of affliction, the people that he is using here as the example are people who are being severely persecuted. They are suffering for the cause of Christ. They're fearful that authorities are going to come in and take them off to jail for their faith, possibly even remove them from the earth by taking their life. This is what we're dealing with here in Macedonia. The churches had been scattered abroad. There's persecution taking place in the midst of Christianity. And these people are literally praying and begging God for their daily provision and their daily life. Notice also, not only their desperate position, but their deep poverty. He goes on to say, he uses the word their deep poverty. This is a people who is in severe poverty. They're not just in poverty, they're in deep poverty. I mean, they're not just struggling to pay the bills, they're in deep mess with their bills. This is a messed up situation here. These people are worried about their life, they're worried about keeping their family together, they're worried about being hauled off to jail and, and tortured and persecuted and killed for the cause of Christ. They're in deep poverty, they don't have food on the table, they don't have the kind of things necessary that, that we would consider necessary, they just had enough that would sustain them. By the way, God promises to meet our needs, not our wants. But nonetheless, here they are now existing, but not a standard of living that we would like to live by. Deep poverty. Now, notice this also. But I want you to see, not only is their desperate position and deep poverty expressed, but the Apostle Paul goes on to note their dazzling power. 
It was amazing what they were doing and what was going on. In verse 3, he says, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. He says, man, I'm going to tell you something. This was an amazing people that we're going to deal with. I'm sharing this testimony with you Corinthians about the Macedonians because these people were in just a dire mess. They were in a great trial of affliction. They were in deep poverty. But let me tell you something. They had some amazing, dazzling power to speak of. Verse 5, he says, I want you to see where it all stemmed from. It's their deliberate presentation of themselves. They deliberately presented themselves. Notice what he says in verse 5. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and, as un, and unto us by the will of God. See, these people in Macedonia had nothing, very little, deep poverty, great affliction. But they also gave with a sense of power that was beyond their ability. Not only did they give Graciously, Not only did they give bountifully, but they gave way beyond their means. The Apostle Paul was so overwhelmed and so overtaken by this expression of love and gratitude to Christ and their willingness to give, even when they had nothing to give. That he looks at these people and says, I wanted to share this testimony with you. See... He was convinced that these believers not only had sacrificially given of their finances, but had presented themselves to the Lord and even unto them, the apostles. See, they, weren't, they, were, not just, they were not giving what they had, but what only God could give through them. Because they had nothing of their own to give. It had to be what God would give through them. They were, not, they were the gift themselves, and everything they had went with it. And so what's happening here is Paul's saying these people gave so much. They, and, and this is the great verse, and, and I like the verse in verse 5 when he says, and it can be a confusing verse. I've got to find it here, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. He says, and this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. Someone says, well, that's ridiculous. The apostle, all he cares about is money. They gave themselves to the Lord, and he didn't even care. He wanted the money first. No, they gave far more than he ever dreamed they'd give. And that's why he could say what he said. But first gave their own selves to the Lord. He said, they didn't start, with, they didn't start by giving us some money to help the saints in need. They gave themselves first. And that's what made possible this supernatural giving that came from them. That's what he's saying. See, the basis of giving by grace or grace giving is a presentation of self to the Lord. Giving oneself first. In his address to the Romans, the Apostle Paul admonishes the believers or the fellow believers, to present themselves unto God. Look, if you will, to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In that particular passage, we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice 
holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There's a few things in the passage that are very noticeable. Number one, they're presenting themselves in request. He's, he's, the apostle saying that we're to present ourselves and that presentation is a request. So presenting yourself is a request. He begs his listeners. He begs them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what the apostle Paul's doing. Beseeching is to beg. And so he asks them, he begs them to present their bodies a living sacrifice unto God. Again, he begs them or beseeches them. He does not demand it. This is interesting because God's desire for you and I is that we give voluntarily. Sure, God wants us to give, but He doesn't want us to give grudgingly or of necessity. He wants us to give with a willing heart. So He beseeches these brothers and sisters in Christ. He does not demand or command. Because, see, here's the problem. When you give grudgingly, you hurt the cause of Christ. Because then you go around talking to everybody about how that church, all they care about is money. And that church, all they care about is getting my pocketbook. And, and I'm so sick of, I don't have enough money as it is. And you know what you just said? God's not big enough to provide for me. That church is a bunch of filthy thieves. And all they care about is themselves. And they don't care anything about me or my family or other people. All they care about is the preacher getting rich, the church having big buildings. And it's all about them. Do you imagine if that's the message you're giving to the family and friends and neighbors and co-workers that you meet every day? Can you imagine how that affects Christ's name and his work in this age? See, God wants us to give willingly. He doesn't want us to give grudgingly. And so in this particular case, he admonishes the believers to give. It's a request. But although he's not demanding, the apostle is beseeching because of his great love for those he's writing to and because of his great desire for God's blessing in their lives. See, when the preacher stands up and says, oh, I, I want you to give according to the word of God, please, people of God, share what God has given you. Give, it, give him what is his. Give him what he asks for. Be liberal in your giving. You say, there he goes again, wanting my money. No, there he goes again, wanting your best. Amen. See, the, th this is what you have to understand. The, bless the foundation for all blessing is proximity. You say, what do you mean? The blessing... Excuse me, the, the, the basis or the foundation for all blessing is proximity. See, you and I need to be close to God and we will, and we will, or we will never truly be close. Excuse me. You and I need to be close to God or we will never truly be close. Ah, I'm trying to read what I wrote. Maybe I wrote it wrong. <laughs> you and I need to be close to God and we will never truly be close. That's how it is. I didn't put the commas in. Until we present ourselves to Him. So we got to get close to God. And as we get close to God, then the blessing comes. 
You say, well, giving has nothing at all to do with getting close to God. But obedience does. See, God wants us to give. If he wants us to give and that's what pleases him, then don't you think, if I please him, I'll closer to him? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. When my kids disobey me, that causes some problems. I'm not as quick to want to bless them when they're not obeying me. When they're obeying me, I really take delight in blessing them. Matter of fact, I look for ways to be able to maybe do things for them that I wouldn't normally do. Listen, how come we always take the, the, the spiritual life and we set it over here and we act like this is what really matters? For me, it's okay to feel that way about my children, but God would never feel that way about His. We do that, though, don't we? Well, God's just a big candy man up in heaven. He's the white beard old man up there, and he's always got candy. See, my grandpa years ago, when, he was, uh, when I was just a kid, we went to the Salvation Army. And every day, every Sunday after, after church on Sunday morning, my grandpa, he, he didn't go to church at the time. He would drive his car into the parking lot. All the kids would run up to the car. Why? Because my grandpa had candy. He'd give candy to all the kids. We'd all run up there, yeah! And everybody would fly up there. It was pretty proud of grandpa because he was a real popular guy. And everybody liked us because he was my grandpa. And so we'd all get our candy, and he'd just, we called him the candy man. Hey, hold on a second. That's all fine and well, but let me tell you something. God's not a candy man. He doesn't just run up and give because he just decides, I'm just going to give no matter what. They can spit in my face. They can reject me. They can deny me. They can do whatever they want, live however they want, go where they want, do whatever they want. Who cares? I'm the candy man. That's not God. You got a wrong image of God. I don't know how you got that image, but it's the wrong image. It's not the biblical image. It's not scriptural image. I want you to understand that proximity determines the blessing that you get with God. You have to be close to God if you want God's greatest blessing. We see that presenting ourselves is a request, but also we know that presenting ourselves is reasonable. That's what he says in the passage. He I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. See, to offer oneself upon the altar of sacrifice to God is not in any way unreasonable. That's not unreasonable. Uh, to surrender all your goals, your dreams, and aspirations over to God, not unreasonable. To abandon your own desires and direction in life, to fulfill God's purpose and plan for your life, not unreasonable. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Amen. Listen, this is reasonable what God demands of us and requires of us and asks of us. It is reasonable. It's quite reasonable to believe that every child of God would unhesitantly and gladly present themselves to the Lord. There's no reason in the world why we as believers, those of us who have made decisions for Christ to surrender self, should ever doubt that anyone else would be willing to. You know what? That's what keeps us from encouraging people to take steps in their Christian life, because we just don't believe people will do that. And maybe sometimes we even believe that because we're holding something back in our own life. Is that possible? Is it possible to believe that young men like these could not, would never, ever fully and completely surrender to Jesus Christ and do whatever God called them to do or desired of them because just maybe 
we never have. And therefore, we don't want to feel like a hypocrite and demand of them what we would never do of ourselves. And maybe we've never fully complied with God's demands to surrender self. And as a result, when I look at other people, I go... Well, I can't expect them to want to do that. I mean, come on now. You gotta, there's limitations. You can't expect people to be really faithful to church. And you can't expect people to really give themselves the standards. And you can't really expect them to separate themselves unto the Lord and to love Christ. And to live a holy life and a, a clean life and a, a godly life and a soul-winning life and an outreach life and a love life for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do that. Why? That's what God says is reasonable. How's come we consider it so unreasonable? Maybe because we're not complying with it. I'm just asking. Why is it our reasonable service, though? Why, why does God say it's not unreasonable to want to surrender all your goals and dreams, your aspirations, your life, your direction? But it's, none of that's a problem. Well, I've decided what I want to be in life. Well, is that what God wants you to be, though, or is that what you want to be? Well, you can't expect... I mean, come on now. There's, there's, there's religion, and then there's life. No. No, that's not how it works in Christianity. See, Christianity is your life. Christ is your life. He is the first five letters of what you have become. Christian. Christ-like. See, in the early church, they were called little Christ. Became Christians. Why is that? Because they appeared to be like Christ. They lived like Christ. They act like Christ. They... they they suffered like Christ. They gave like Christ. And they said, those are little Christs. Everywhere you look, there's these little Christs everywhere. They're driving us nuts. We got rid of the big Christ, and now there's all these little Christs everywhere. And it frustrated them. So I calling them Christians. That's a derogatory. Christians. I remember watching a show uh, about Caesar Augustus, and, and I don't know who the actor was, but he'd always say, Christians! Christians! This real derogatory tone, very inflammatory tone. I, I'm not so sure that it wasn't like that in the early church. I'm not so sure that he didn't really grasp the real feelings toward believers in Christ in that day. And may I say today that that in our day and age, God wants us to be little Christ. He wants people to see Him in us. That won't happen until we give ourselves first. And is it our reasonable service? Of course it is. How's that possible? First of all, it's, it's our reasonable service in light of His sacrifice. You think about what Christ has done for you. What he's done for me on Calvary. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Do you get it? He gave his all for you, and he gave his all for me. And today he says, it's your reasonable service to present yourself to me. Why? Because I've given you everything. And we say, yes, Lord, you deserve everything. Not only his sacrifice, but his supply. In James chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. 
Let me ask you something, and I, and I, don't, I don't ask this for any other reason than just to try to in, kind of a, invoke a response in your heart, okay? If you knew that you had two weeks to live, I mean, if you knew, so, uh, you, you knew, you, you went to the doctor, the doctor said you have inoperable cancer, you have two weeks to live, how would your life change? How would it change? And the only reason I ask that is I want you to think about what's important to you right now versus what would be important to you if you only had two weeks or even a month to live. What would change? I mean, is there a, a child that you would witness to if you knew you only had two weeks to live? Is there a family member that you would share Christ with? Is there a Bible or a book that you might pick up that you haven't picked up lately? Is there a place where you would finally come to Christ in prayer if you knew in two weeks you'd be meeting Him face to face as a believer? I'm just asking the question. I'm posing it as a rhetorical question to try to get you to think about what, it, what would change in your life. Would things, I think every one of our lives would change to some degree, but I think some would change much more drastically than others. I think some people would pick up the Word of God for the first time in weeks and really get into it like they've never gotten into it. I think people would get on their knees and pray like they haven't done in days or weeks or maybe even months. I think folks would visit a neighbor or talk to a family member or go to a friend and say, Listen, I don't know much about the book, but what I know is you need Jesus Christ or you'll never get to heaven and I'm going to be there shortly. And I want you to join me. I think it would change our lives. See, when we present ourselves to the Lord, what we're saying is, I'm presenting myself to the Lord, and I'm saying to Him basically this, Lord, it's not mine anymore, it's all yours. It's almost as if we have already conceded our life is over, and everything that's left from the time we commit it to Christ, present it to the Lord, on, is all His. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have to quit our job. That doesn't mean we're necessarily going to have to, to change uh, all of our relationships. That doesn't mean everything's going to turn upside down in a sense of our daily routine. But let me tell you something. There will be some things that will change when we fully and completely present ourselves to Christ. Sir, Mark O'Donnell, reporting for duty. Sir, I'm presenting myself to you, and it's yours to do with as you please. There ain't much here, but what there is, it's all yours. He gives us everything in our life. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You and I will never, ever, ever be able to repay the Lord for rescuing our souls and providing eternal life or for the constant and sufficient care that He provides for us. But but there, but there is nothing that says we can't do our best with His help to honor Him and please Him with the rest of our life days. I'm so, you'll never be able to repay it, so why try? Are you kidding me? That'd be like saying, your parents raised you for 18 years, don't ever, you never ever, do they ever want you to have, show any kind of gratitude, any kind of respect, any kind of consideration from that point on. That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Of course I've put food in the bellies of my children and clothes on their back and a roof over their head. I've done my best with God's help. It's not always been what maybe others have had, but it's what I could do with God's help. He did that. And I say to those kids, this is what we can do. This is what we've been able to do. And I trust that you'll be appreciative of it. One day when they're 20, 21, 22, 23, and 40, and 50, I hope they don't just say, well, mom and dad, sorry, but that was back then and this is now. I appreciate what you did way back then, but I could care less that you're my parents today. That's ridiculous. 
I'd be a broken-hearted person. I want my kids to forever be grateful for what I did for them and even the influence and the impact that I have in their life today and even into the future. You know, that's all God wants from you. He wants you to give yourself to Him because, see, there's no way you could ever repay Him. I understand. But why in the world wouldn't you try? Why wouldn't you give Him your best? I mean, we know we can, but can't we try and say, God, I'll never be able to repay you, but what I got is yours and you can have it. We present ourselves. Now, hold on. Here's the thing. We don't have much time. We're going to close this down. The believers in Macedonia, the Bible says they first gave their own selves to the Lord. And then came their power to give beyond their ability. See, their giving was a reflection of their surrender. And the apostle apostle Paul makes it perfectly clear that every believer is to present themselves in like manner to the Lord. And so when a, a child of God wholly presented themselves unto the Lord, once they've done that, they're now able to do the impossible in every area of their life, including their giving. It's amazing what God can help you to do with your life in every aspect of it once you've, once you've presented yourself. See, I'm convinced that too often we're asking those who have not yet presented self, they've not yet presented self to the Lord, to give their finances to him. And that's a hard sale. That's a hard sale. Giving is about giving. You say, that's, that's ludicrous. That's a stupid statement. Well, when one gives themselves to the Lord, giving their finances follows. So what I want you to see. I have this little thing I, I threw together. You'll notice there's the word self all the way around this box. We know that you're all squares. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. You're too young. We used to call people that weren't cool squares. Before that, they called them, those were what cigarettes were called, weren't they? But anyway, uh, they were, weren't they? Didn't you roll square? You had a square? Okay. All right. Nobody? Okay. Anyway, here here we are. Here we are. We're, We're represented by the square there. Maybe that was just in prison. But anyway, um, (laughs) notice it says self. Self on the outside. The square represents you, yourself. Now, within you, there's a number of things. There's your time, your talent, your treasures. You say, I could divide that up a bunch of different ways, preacher. I know you could. And and I'm sure, you know, if we took the time, we could easily do so. But for the sake of time today, we see your time, your talent, your treasures. All those things are really, those are your things, I guess we could say. We'd say abilities and Uh, the things that you own, maybe, or that you have, so to speak. And here's self again. That's all part of you, in a sense. It's a package deal. The the, the thing is, is that many times we're asking people to give this, the treasures, since we're talking about finances today, money, we're asking people to give the treasures. Or maybe even we're asking them to give their talent to Christ. Or maybe we're saying, give your time to the Lord. You, you, You know why it's so difficult? Because... Because we're trying to get them to give a piece of themselves. And and it hurts. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. He says that they gave of themselves what? First, when a person gives self to God, 
then God has their time, their talent, their treasures. It's not hard to get the finances. It's not hard to get the talent. It's not hard to get the time of the believer who has totally and completely presented self to Christ. As a matter of fact, we've got to run them off. You've got to say, you've got to get home, brother. You've got to get back. You've you got to get home, sister. We've got to teach you some balance in the Christian life. Because our heart is to please Christ so much that if we're not careful, we can lose sight of what's, most in, what's, what's important as well. Other things that are important. You can't separate your family from Christ, though. You can't separate your money from Christ. You can't separate your time from Christ, your talents. It's all one big whole. So what we do is we teach balance in the Christian life. Well, you've got to give self. We've got, we got the tithe challenge coming up. I'm not even asking you to give yourself before you give your tithe. I'm not even going to do that today. I would hope you would. I, I would really, tr- I'm telling you that if you would do that, it would bless your life, your family, and your future. You, you can't imagine what God would do if you'd give yourself wholly to Christ. If you would surrender, submit, and as the Bible says, present yourself. It's, going to be, it's tough to give this when you haven't given this. It's really hard. Very hard. You know, it's hard to get that when you haven't given this. It's even hard to get that when you haven't given that. You know, people that are committed to any other, any, any kind of benevolent organization, normally they've given themselves to that organization. Therefore, they don't have a problem giving their time to it. I'm asking you to give yourself to Jesus Christ. That is an eternal investment. And when you give yourself to Christ, when you present yourself to Him, sure, sure it's going to change your life. Why? Because everything is now His to do it as He pleases, not as you choose. That's the change that takes place. All of a sudden, my money's not mine. All of a sudden, my family's not mine. All of a sudden, my life's not mine. My future's not mine. Everything is Christ. But boy, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of, lot of peace in that too. When, when, when God led myself to sh- uh, and, and Sherry to start Community Baptist Temple, I was very nervous about that prospect because I was concerned that I may not be able to do what God wanted me to do or to accomplish what He intended me to accomplish. I was concerned that we wouldn't be able to provide for the needs of people as they were needed. I mean, we didn't have a youth group. We didn't have a choir. We didn't have... A, a Sunday school. We didn't have all the stuff that churches have, and I thought nobody, nobody's going to ever want to come to Community Baptist Temple and just hear me preach. I was just a little bit, I got a little bit, the devil kind of got on my back a little bit before we opened the doors. And, and as we, we, we went through some things, I realized something. I, as we started to go, draw closer to that day, as we moved into that time, I realized something. This isn't about me. What I have is his now. And what I'm, my responsibility, my responsibility isn't that that church be a million or a thousand or 500 or 200 or 100. My responsibility is to please God with my life, my lips, and to obey God in every aspect of my life. My future's His. My success is His. My failure's His. Everything's His because I've given it to Him. If He wants me to succeed in some area as far as the world is concerned, that is God's deal. That's His business. If he wants me to fail, that's God's business. I'm only his to do it as he pleases. And therefore, I could stand before people and preach like we had a church of a thousand with every 
every single program in place that every church had in America. Because I knew one thing. It's up to God to do it. It's not about me. It's about Him. And I don't have to worry about the results. Those are His problems. I'll do the work. He's worried about the results. You just tell me what you want me to do, Lord, and the rest is up to you. It takes a lot of pressure off you. Now when you have a bad day, everyone's sick, you don't leave going, man, I'm a terrible preacher, I'm a horrible administrator, I I can't get nothing done right. I'm so discouraged today. I don't live my life like that now. That's God's business. Listen, when you sit in my staff meeting, though, if I see things that need fixed, I'm going to tell you what needs fixed. Why? Because I know some things that God wants right in this church. Just like any man or woman that runs a business, you know what needs to be done, or at least you hope you do, and you move forward, and you do what God leads you in this particular case, and you get it done. If it's not being done, sooner or later we have to find somebody that will do it. But then on the end, when it's all said and done, I walk away every week, I lay my head on a pillow, I go to sleep like I do every other week. It wasn't long ago, 388 people sat in the auditorium and down in the other buildings on Sunday, just two, or three, two weeks ago, I think. Do you know how discouraging that could be? We used to run, what, 488 the week before? We're down to 388. Whatever. God's wanted to let everybody be sick that week. I'm not responsible for how many show up in church. I'm responsible to make sure we go out and get them, follow up on them, and do what we got to do. All I'm saying is, is that once you present yourself to the Lord, you don't bear this great burden anymore of how you're going to succeed. It's all on God's shoulders. You just obey Him now. He's responsible for the results. There's a great peace that comes in that. When God has you, everything is His to do with as He sees fit. And I want to encourage you to give God your all. Giving is not about putting money in a plate. Giving starts with you putting yourself, so to speak, in a plate. Presenting self. Will you give, will you do your reasonable service? Will you present yourself to the Lord today? Say, Lord, everything I have, everything I am is yours today. You saved me. You supply me. You meet mine every need. I, I, I don't have nothing without you. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we had to gather here today. We ask, Lord, that you just speak to our hearts now in these next few moments. Father, in this room we've talked primarily, Father, I, I suppose we could say we've spoken primarily to the believer. But Lord, today there's an element of presentation that every unbeliever needs to recognize as well. That Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came and died for their sin, hung on a cross and rose again the third day. He did all that for them. And and Lord, He wants them to present themselves to Him. He says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Call upon, He says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord wants those who have yet to receive and accept Him, to literally acknowledge their sin, their guilt before God who's holy, and recognize that He alone can pay for their sin. And Lord, then He wants them to just be willing to accept what Christ did on Calvary to pay for their sin. 
and invite him into their life and come to him, entering into a relationship that will last through eternity. Father, there may be those that don't know Christ as their Savior today. May they come to Jesus. May they not leave here without Christ. May they realize there's more to living than just simply living. There's eternity, and there's Christ who makes it full. It's like watching black and white or color, Lord. Having Christ in our life truly does help the birds to sound more beautiful and the sky to look more blue. Father, He changes us and helps us and makes us new. Father, help us today. And Lord, for the believer, may they be willing to present themselves. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.